Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Actually, that's cool, because now you have to do fast karate, and me and Joel can be all like anime world order. We'll be like, well... (laughs) That's fine with me. (laughs) Mamoru Oshii's directorial styles are amazing. I'm Dave from... Fast karate for the gentleman. I pause every few words. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Anime World Order. As always, I am Gerald Rathgold, and as always with me... What's up with this as always, <laughs> always. repetition thing? I know this is show number 40, and we're officially over the hill, as What's wrong always. With it? And as always, I'm Clarissa. Okay, and again, as always, you can visit our website at www.animeworldorder.com. Call our number at 206-666-4296. Email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com. Or send us an audio. Just go to the website and click on send us an audio. And, well, send us feedback any way that you want. So, what are we going to do this week? Well, this week I'm going to review a movie that pretty much nobody likes except for me. That's okay, because this is our podcast. And I so like it. Gonna th- Nobody who counts except me. <laughs> what? <laughs> the Dagger of Kamui by Rintaro. What is that about? It's a <laughs> reference to The Simpsons. Not me. I am finally breaking down and doing something that we've had a, a couple requests for and that I've been pretty excited about doing and reviewing part of one of the longest running shonen fighting manga series ever and probably also one of the most insane manga series ever conceived JoJo's Bizarre Adventure part 1. Yeah. And I'm going to be taking a look at a television series that I've kind of been watching for the past couple of weeks, and that I've been kind of teasing people with for a while. Future Police Urashiman. Rather obscure show. Probably one of the more obscure shows that we've done, and that's really saying something. (laughs) Pretty soon we're going to get so obscure that we're just going to disappear into a singularity. (laughs) Yeah, it's as William Bradford said, who said, Gerald equals obscure bootleg anime from the 80s. Yeah. William Bradford, classy individual. This is actually the first... (laughs) bootleg anime that I've looked at. Mm. Anyway. What can I say? Anyway, last week I asked about what the status of um, anime clubs were in basically the area where all of our listeners are, and we actually got quite a number of responses back. I asked that because we have three clubs in Central Florida. Actually, we probably have more than that, but we have got three major ones. And one of them has been around since about 1991, and it ended just about two, three weeks ago or so. Oh, and we have it, another... It ended its showings. It's basically now an event-based club. Yeah, the club still exists. Another sort of club 
that had monthly showings is on hiatus for a good long while. And another club that used to have usually an average of about 50 people every other week attending it now usually has about six people or so attending it. Basically, the concept of the anime club in our area has sort of been dying. And I'm interested to find out if this is sort of the trend among America or if this is sort of a Central Florida thing. Some of the responses we got, here's one from Douglas Lastman. He says, hello, I love your podcast. I listened to most of the episodes, well, at least half, and I have to credit it and you, along with Haruhi Suzumiya, for getting me back into anime. So damn you for that. <laughs> you can never escape once you're in. You asked about anime viewing clubs. I personally have at least some knowledge of two clubs in my area, San Francisco. Both of these are high school clubs since I'm in high school. The first is my own high school. Freshman year, there were maybe two or three viewings with nothing else outside that, and we had about ten members. Next year, there was really no anime club at all. Then this year, about twenty new freshmen came in, and the club was really active, with at least usually around fifteen to twenty members at viewings. However, our watching was changed a little. So far, we've watched Full Metal Panic, which I skipped not really being an FMP fan, and Princess Mononoke, among others, whereas before we were watching stuff like Monster. The other club I know of is at a local all-girls school where a couple of my friends go. Apparently, they have a ton of members, regular viewings, and are doing really great. They even have anime club sweatshirts. Sweatshirts! So, good for them. I think the reason why the first club recently experienced a boom in membership and the second is already popular is because in San Francisco there is a really major Asian population that's really booming. 31% and increasing. About 60% in my neighborhood. I mean, yeah, not every Asian person watches anime or reads manga, but they it seems don't? more popular with Asians. <laughs> Most of the membership of our clubs is Asian. So I think that's helping the growth of the anime clubs in high schools around here. Mm -hmm. And in a complete non sequitur, are you guys ever going to come to the West Coast? I mean, I wouldn't expect you to, but it would be totally freaking awesome if you did. So, finally, thanks for making an awesome podcast, and you guys rock. I wouldn't be surprised if the Asian population does make a difference, because I've noticed that most of the areas that have really awesome good stores and really awesome Japanese bookstores are usually areas like California or New York that have a pretty sizable Asian area. Well, yeah, because I mean, those stores are made for the Asian, exactly. Asian population in so, the area, so yeah. yeah. In Orlando, some of the best stores are down in the uh, Asian area down here, even though it's kind of small, and it's mostly, like, what, Korean? Vietnamese. It's Vietnamese. Vietnamese down there. Yeah, like, every area seems to have a different yeah. sort of Asian population. We happen to have you the Vietnamese. they're not all the same? <laughs> yeah. I just wish we had the really nice, you know, Japanese bookstores here, where you could just walk down and buy stuff, but we don't have enough of a Japanese population for that here. Yeah, they all went to Atlanta and just stopped there. <laughs> so that's how it is in San Francisco, which is the opposite mm -hmm. coast from us. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't sound so bad. actually had another one from the other coast in uh, Georgia, and this is by Michael N., and he says, Gerald, you asked about the state of anime clubs, and I guess I'll supply an answer slightly. In almost all high schools, there is an anime club now, but these clubs are simply a place for the annoying people that of whom usually panhandle and act like a bunch of idiots and get together for a week and do what they do. It's usually fairly wild, but in a strange way, ours is like a small con, in a way. We usually do different events and games, such as Whose Line Is It Anime, or things like trivia contests, video gaming, and those sorts of things. There are two types of high school cons, I think. There's this kind, which focuses on ways to apply anime without necessarily watching it, and there's the viewing room type, which usually just watches anime. 
So the best way to put it is that local anime clubs like those that you're talking about are usually on a downward slant, while high school anime clubs are on a rise. Personally, I find it a way to get people to watch good anime instead of things like Negima or Burst Angel. Of course, that's working well, as I stated before. Well, I guess that's it. Since you mentioned anime clubs, why not mention the horrible voicemail I sent, which was a good example to show that people just don't care about much of the older stuff. Well, the voicemail that he sent, we couldn't play it because the recording came out bad. He tried to show Macross, the original TV series, to people. They couldn't deal with it. They refused to watch it because it looked too old. Then he showed them the Daikon 4 animation, and everybody hated it. They all thought the girl was totally ripping off Fruly Cooly, even though it's the oh. other way around. Oh my god. And it infuriated oh. him, just like it infuriates me to relay this tale. God. So, he was talking about just a general futility of high school age students to do the kinds of things that we talk about on this show. Man. Such is life. That makes my brain hurt. Yeah, really. <laughs> Gynax made Daikon so long before they did Footy Goody. God, yeah. Like God. 20 years or something. It's Almost like obvious by looking at it that it's Daikon yeah. is so much older. Ah! Sorry. Yeah, I don't get it. But he brings up another point where he says that the local clubs versus the high school clubs, I think he's overthinking it. I think it's more just an issue of the anime clubs that are dedicated to viewing things, those are on the decline. And the other anime clubs that are dedicated to doing tangentially related activities, mm. those are potentially either mm. treading water, growing, or declining. I don't know. I don't know. I think that the reason is that maybe it's because high school students have less access to anime in terms of being able to buy it themselves since maybe they don't yeah. have this type of steady income. I know that that not, might be like an exaggeration. There are plenty of high school students who have got, you know, access to mommy's and daddy's credit card. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, maybe there's some that just really don't have the money to buy it themselves while a lot of the local clubs are attended by adults who can now buy it on their own. Right. I'm not sure because even here where I live, there is an anime club which I've never ever gone to and it's run on a college campus and all they run is crap that's why I've never gone <laughs> and I don't think it's a case of poor college students I think it's seriously a case of this is what people want to see do you think that maybe it's on the decline though I've never uh, been there then you don't I know if it's declining it, well this is my guess there used to be a convention in this city and now there isn't one because the people who used to run it moved away and no one else in the club bothered to take up the reins or anything mm. like that. I hear that next year someone's going to try and do it again. Who knows if that's actually going to happen. I'm guessing it will, but mm -hmm. judging from the state of the amount of anime conventions in the state of Florida, I'm right. not one to say whether that's a terribly bad thing. Well, I guess maybe if they're older and have more money to, to, to get anime for themselves, and they're more likely to, say, have broadband connections to download fan subs, that it's probably what you're going to be left over with for the meetings is more the people who like watching things in a group. And there are always going to be some people who enjoy watching things with other fans, but not everybody, I think, is really into that. When it comes down to it, the purpose of anime clubs really isn't the same anymore. 
Um, right. Before the purpose <clears throat> right. of anime clubs was, hey, it's hard to get anime. Let's mm-hmm. spread the word about anime and raise awareness. Yeah. yeah. Teach people about these new shows. And to give them credit, they did their job. They did it so well. Right. That mission's that, been accomplished. Yeah. It's like the decline of uh, viewing rooms at anime conventions in general. When everything is, you know, readily available, you don't really have to uh, show it. It's, mm-hmm. There wasn't really sort of the same trend that I was looking at here, but then again, there were anime clubs that had hundreds of people attending, and we haven't gotten any emails like that. Everything has pretty much been, like, high school-based. So. I remember well, we haven't I... gotten that many emails, period. So no, we got a couple. To... And most of it's them have been just tell. high school. Yeah, I, I don't want to draw any conclusions based on the email responses just because there haven't been that many. So. Yeah, and we haven't gotten any from outside of America. All of these have been, like, American students. Right. So I don't know if maybe the situation is different in uh, Europe or South America or somewhere, because I know we have listeners over there. On that subject, we've got an uh, email here from, I guess his name's Kyle, possibly James. Can't tell from the email address. I'm guessing his name's Kyle. He wrote us this one. This is my first email to you guys, but I've been listening to your podcast religiously since episode 21, and it has been one of the highlights of each week since then. I'm an undergrad at MIT, here and after referred to as hell. Why <laughs> see, the, see the picture I've attached? It's on the Harvard Bridge separating the MIT campus from Boston. Now, as a student of hell, it is a prerequisite to have dabbled in all forms of geekery. You name it, I've probably done it. Mm. God, fursuits. If I have not done it, <laughs> I can direct you to someone who has. When you place the world's most intense geeks into a single college, you are sure to have more than a few anime fans in the mix, and I am proudly one of them. Unfortunately, hell has a tendency to load you up with too much work at one time. Mm-hmm. We anime fans have to hold off on our most recent episodes straight from Japan, or recently bought items, for some time before we can actually get a chance to watch them. So what does one do when the first round of midterms has passed and there are no good parties on Friday night? Four simple things. One, grab a 30-pack. Two, cook some beer-battered brats. <laughs> Three, grab a couple of your fellow anime fans. Four, marathon! And yep. drink the remaining beers. <laughs> I've done some memorable marathons in previous years at Hell. 62 episodes of Bleach in two days. Wow. Reading every chapter of Berserk, which at the time was 266 chapters, in one weekend. The entire Crest or Banner of the Stars series. That's just to name a few. I hadn't done a marathon in a while. This was my chance. Recently, I picked up A Wind Named Amnesia, as per your recommendations. I found it to be an excellent movie overall and enjoyed it thoroughly. But just as you mentioned in episode 28, it would be a better fit for a short series or an OAV. Nevertheless, as I said, it was a great movie and I would never have gotten it if it weren't for you guys. After A Wind Named Amnesia, we were only a few beers into the remaining 25 or so we had after the batter for the brats. So we needed more. I came across M.D. Geist. Oh, no. Although we finished with... most of the remaining drinks during M.D. Geist. Yeah, I was about to say, having beer on hand is probably the best way to approach M.D. Geist. <laughs> or possibly hard liquor. Yeah. I wanted to end on a better note. On to New Getter Robo. I downloaded a few episodes. I apologize, but I'm a broke college student and for the most part can't afford to buy the whole thing. I would like to say that this show is the most badass balls-to-the-wall show I have ever seen. Gratuitous (laughs) violence plus good old drinky drink equals one amazing time. (laughs) I haven't seen all of it yet, but Daryl, I deeply thank you and continue the good work. Thanks to you guys, I had the most rewarding marathon I have ever had. 
It was only a few hours, one of the shorter marathons I've done, but it was a nice medley of the good, the badass, and the ugly that anime has to offer. Thanks, keep up the good work. Your podcast is one of the things that keep me going during the week. I'm eagerly awaiting your future reviews to fill my next anime marathon with more greatness. (laughs) P.S. For the show, if you guys are reviewing a series, you probably have to marathon the entire series to be able to review it in time. Do you enjoy marathoning a show, or do you prefer to watch a few episodes at a time? I've answered this in previous shows, James. Uh I prefer to watch through shows in marathon settings. Yeah. Just because it lets you immerse yourself in the series and you get to see the whole thing, the big picture, at once. Right. For me, it's, it depends on the show, very much well, so. Give some examples yeah. of what you'd prefer to watch in marathon and what you'd prefer to watch like a few episodes at a time. Personally, I prefer to watch shows where there's a very sort of continuous storyline, where the end of the one episode and the beginning of the next sort of are very, very close together. Shows like Berserk, Space Adventure Cobra is a very good example of a show that's just like one long story. Those, I think, work very well on marathoning. Shows that don't work as well, in my opinion, and I love these shows, don't get me wrong, but a lot of the giant robot shows don't really work for me for marathoning because it's sort of like the same thing over and over again, and they kind of all meld together. One giant monster versus another giant monster, 20 episodes later, is kind of hard to distinguish. Mm-hmm. So I prefer the when when that's sort of a continuous storyline. Yeah, I think in general I like to do marathons because, first of all, it's one of the easiest ways that I have to watch stuff. Because, like he was saying, you know, I'm sure, thankfully I don't have anywhere near I'm sure the workload that this poor guy has at MIT. But I also tend to have a lot of projects for school that all kind of hit at the same time in same times in the semester. And so there's a lot of times where long stretches of time where I don't really have a chance to watch much of anything. And I do also have to cram stuff in. And for the most part, I like it because if I watch something all at once or in like one or two chunks, it keeps everything fresh. So, you know, if there's things that happen later on in the show that refer back to things from earlier... It's if not it's like you only saw it been six months ago. Yeah, if it's only been like a few hours since I watched those earlier episodes, I remember it very clearly when I get to that later episode and I can more easily see the connections. Whereas if it was, you know, like you said, six months ago that I watched that episode, I might have forgotten some of the details that are referenced in this later episode. But, you know, sometimes there are shows that don't always work so well. Like, I think if a show is too involving, like if it's too complex, or if it's really emotionally heavy, I might like to space it out more in order to have more time to sort of think over and form impressions about each episode or each couple of episodes and, like, recover from the emotional blows. I think Legend of the Galactic Heroes I like watching spaced out. Even though, on the one hand, it might be nice to have the earlier episodes be fresh when stuff gets referenced later, that show is pretty heavy, and I like to have some time to think about it and have some breathing room from all of the talking. (laughs) Fortunately, the time it takes to subtitle each episode is more than enough. <laughs> yes, well, there's there's a good backlog of episodes built up that are already subbed that I'm still kind of making my way through, but yes, generally speaking. So yeah, as a rule, James, we do pretty much marathon the entire series yeah. to get it fresh in our minds before we review it. 
Sometimes well, I as a rule, as a rule, I don't. Well, I That's... do. I usually, whenever I do a review of something, I rewatch the entire thing just to have mm -hmm. it in my mind, and then yeah. I do my review. Well, and I usually space uh... them out, and depending on the show. Well, I think it always is going to vary. There's always going to be exceptions, and it's always going to depend. Like, some shows, I'll marathon, but afterwards, I almost kind of regret it because my brain is just kind of destroyed. Like, I marathoned Utena once, and that was kind of rough. I don't I know. that's the only way I've ever watched that show is in marathon form. I think my brain, at some point, near the end, was trying to dribble out of my ears. But <laughs> it was a great experience, but at the same time, it kind of hurt my brain. So... Yeah, I don't think one way is any better than another way, really. I think mm -hmm. it's just personal preference. Whereas I know that marathoning is better. <laughs> no, it's not. It's my personal preference, which means it's better. <laughs> Next email, please. <laughs> Otherwise, Daryl will talk more. Oh, hush. You're both equally obnoxious. So, there. We have another email from Shelley Rains, and she says... First, so you know where I'm coming from. I became a fan of yours eight episodes ago. I'm a new anime watcher. I've only been watching for about three years, though I've been a fan of Western-style animation and comics off and on all my life. I'm older, in my 40s, and female. That probably puts me in about the smallest otaku demographic there is. Oh, wait, I can shrink it more. I like older anime. Or maybe older-style anime would work better. You know, stuff with stories and emotion and depth and no freaking moe. I think I'm the one of two people who watched Hinotori when it came out and loved it. It made me try Blackjack, which I loved as well. I found some great older stuff on Usenet, like Angel's Egg, which showed me anime's potential, and I found and loved newer stuff like Hundred Stories and Paranoia Agent and Gankutsuo and Monster, and Yaoi and Oron High School Host Club. Go Clarissa! So, I love your show. You introduced me to the Captain Harlock slash Galaxy Express 39 slash Galaxy Railways universe. You got me to try Master Keaton. Oh god, I love whoever it was who brought that one up. And Lupin the Third and Area 88 and the Pat Labor movies. And I have several others sitting on my shelf waiting to be watched now. I'm still not ready for Fist of the North Star, but it's probably only a matter of time. By the way, Clarissa, someone just started fansubbing Boku Patariro, and I think I'm in love. Can you tell me more about this one? Like, are there any legitimate subtitled releases anywhere for this? Or even illegitimate ones? I need more, and I can't find any. One more by the way. I love Twelve Kingdoms, and among the women I know online, it's considered one of the best fantasy series, and Fushi Yugi, oh the pain, one of the worst. Twelve Kingdoms feels to me like a sleeper series that gradually picks up momentum as word of mouth spreads. So there is hope for it in the tastes of those like us who like good shoujo, and know that's not an oxymoron. Anyway, I love your reviews. I like your mix of old and new. I appreciate you talking about anime I can get a hold of, and I'll always be grateful for your introducing me to just wonderful titles. So keep up the good work, bringing great anime to our notice. P.S. Oh yes, The Simpsons died a long time ago. Please bury them. And P.P.S. Yay for Harlan Ellison references. Man, you'd almost think that we're affecting people's lives. <laughs> I, I know. It's crazy. I don't think anybody's ever truly ready for Fist of the North Star. It'll destroy you, I it think. It will. No matter who you are. That's yeah. What does. <laughs> yes. Your head will indeed explode. Oh, God. Somehow you'll still be alive afterwards, but uh, your head will burst. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing or not. I still it's can't decide. <laughs> It'll feel like a wrecking ball hitting you in the back out of nowhere. It's the essence of guerrilla warfare. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Potolero. Yeah, they did just uh, start fan-subbing that finally. It took long enough. I've never gotten my hands before on, like, older fan-subs. I just got sent a whole bunch of discs of it. 
but I haven't actually had a chance to watch them, and I believe that they're all raw. I don't think that they're fan-subbed. There's no official U.S. release of this show, and I don't know if there ever will be. I kind of doubt it, because it's old shoujo, and that stuff generally doesn't get released over here. I mean, we still haven't gotten Rose of Versailles, so I don't know if we're going to get this. It's a real long shot. Yeah, you might be able to find HK DVDs of it if you are really desperate, but the big thing with HK DVDs is that you never know what you're going to get in terms of subtitles. You'll either get something that's fairly readable, or you will get something that says it's English, but it really isn't. It's not anything that's actually intelligible as English, which can sometimes make shows a little difficult to watch. Sometimes you'll hit the jackpot and it'll be so bad that it makes the show a whole lot more entertaining than you ever thought right. it would be. If you've ever <laughs> seen those bootleg foreign subs for like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars that they have screen caps of all over the internet, those are pretty gold for the most part. Sometimes you're just stuck with something that makes no sense whatsoever. Kind of mind-boggling. <laughs> So, I don't know, if you're really, really desperate, I guess you can try for th that, but I'd really recommend just sticking out the painful weight for more fan subs. Plus, if, if you keep downloading the series and if you can convince any other people to download it, the more people who get it, usually the faster the fan subbers will work on it, barring real-life complications that get in the way, so... Sorry, I can't be a little more help for you there. <laughs> and she also said, no freaking moe. And yeah. while I doubt that any of our listeners are really into the moe, I wonder if there is actually any female fan of moe that exists out there. I imagine that oh, there all are. the people who are dressed in the maid outfits... Yeah, girls go to... Women go to maid cafes all the time in Japan. But don't they like those because, you know, the maid outfits look cute, not necessarily like in the moe sense. They're just well-designed, or they like the service? Mm. I don't know, since I'm not a woman in Japan I don't know. I mean, dressing up in a maid outfit. I would assume <laughs> that if they really think the maid outfits are cute, then that would qualify as moe. I don't know. I think that there's Enough, there's a I'm... difference between like liking something because it's cute and then the moe thing, which is the weird longing sort of aspect of it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think it's hard to say. I mean, I can't really speak for all of those women that go to those places, so... Oh, yes, um, you do. You're, you're a female. You speak for every even, woman on planet Earth. Not even the great <laughs> sage Patrick Macias can speak for even what Moe is. And on that note, I'd just like to plug... He was interviewed on the Mistakes of Youth podcast... Yes, Which listen to that. Is a very good interview. It's 37 minutes, and it probably conveys more information about Patrick than we got out of him in five hours. But it's not. <laughs> given the choice, if we had to do it again, I would change nothing. And if we get Patrick <laughs> back on the show, or rather, when, it'll be exactly the same. Awesome. <laughs> Only more of it. But yeah, we'll put a link to that up in the show notes since the Mistakes of Youth yeah. podcast URL is. I don't have it in tiny URL. It's... And you guys should also go check out the awesome videos of Patrick talking to goth lolis. Yes. In Harajuku. Going to a goth loli apartment. Sweet. Yeah, unfortunately he doesn't jump up and yell moe this time, but... Well, uh, no. Yeah. No, he doesn't. 
And actually, yeah, I've, I've got it in tiny URL now. <laughs> to get to the Mistakes of Youth podcast, they don't seem to actually have a feed, but they've got a website, and the link to specifically the Patrick Macias interview is tinyurl.com slash ya95ye. So we'll put that in the show notes. And I believe it was, what, two shows ago that we talked about the uh, Funimation contest, or was it just the last show? Well, we did it the last show as well. Okay. You know, like, I just uploaded it, and <laughs> today's, like, the last day for it. And I Sorry, guys. It yeah. yeah. We, we yeah. have to apologize, first of all, that we didn't know that this contest was limited to only people in the United States and Canada. Right. Yeah, they it didn't tell so. us that. Yeah, it yeah. has to do with the legality thing of the Region mm -hmm. 1. You can only send it to Region 1 areas. Yeah, Funimation so. isn't the bad guys there. It's just, you know, the contract. So. Right. Because there's other companies that are in charge of doing the other region releases. Yeah, we got a few people. Law. Yeah, we got a few people who emailed in from outside of the country, and, you know, we're sorry. We should yeah. have said something if we'd known. Yeah, um, we didn't know until it was too late. Yeah. Anyway, we've got about 13 entries here. What I'm going to do now is, using the power of the random.org random integer generator and keep things <laughs> perfectly fair, we're going to randomly choose three numbers, and those three numbers will determine who are the winners. Yeah. Okay, so if you don't win, don't get mad at us. Right, it's, it's, it's the all, random number generator's fault. Yeah. It's all the web interface to the tree random numbers by some crazy Swedish dude or whatever. <laughs> And the winners are Trevin Bowden, David Lee, and Steve Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> you are the winners of Full Metal Panic, the second raid, volume one. We will send your addresses to Funimation and you'll get those post-haste. <laughs> Let's well, see. Oh, we have to at least read what their their entries were. Let's see. Trevin wrote oh something really long, but Trevin said he first started watching anime with Robotech, and couldn't really get into Full Metal Alchemist because of the constant short jokes that weren't funny. Right on. Current favorites were Ghost and Shell Standalone Complex. Liked Ergo Proxy up until the end, because that reminded him that the team that did Ergo Proxy did Wolf's Rain, and Wolf's Rain sucked. <laughs> and he also liked Mushishi and Blame. Blame's pretty cool. We'll talk about that at some point. Then David Lee, he was also looking forward to seeing Fist of the Blue Sky fan subbed as well as 009-1, but nobody did. So every time he sees Canon released six times, he kind of dies a little on the inside. <laughs> we'll talk a little. Well, we already talked about Canon last week, and we died yeah. a little on the inside as well. Yeah. And finally, Steve said... <laughs> It's funny how things I bring up while talking to Daryl turn into topics of discussion at AWO. I'm flattered. Oh, come on, admit it. There's no reason for anyone to be suddenly talking about the merits of Rumiko Takahashi's stuff now, out of the blue, if not for me. Wah ha 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 ha. Actually, if memory serves, it was Chad's voicemail. That inspired us to talk about that. This is why we love you, Steve. It's all good. Should warn y'all, I have people telling me that with my super new iMac G5, I should start a podcast. I don't think so, because I don't want to spend eight hours uploading the thing, which you never know. So yes, that is our contest for Full Metal Panic, the second raid, volume one. 
Maybe we I don't know. I, th- I think Steve should contests. do a, a Yamato podcast. Yes. <laughs> Steve and Walter Amos. Yes, there you oh, go. Boy. All Yamato. All and the Tim time. Eldred, I would hope. Yeah, definitely. Steve and Tim Eldred are really down with each other as of late. Then I think Ooh. that would make an amazing podcast, don't you think? Yes, so... I want to hear Steve and Tim Eldred fight it out on yeah. the air. Come on, <laughs> Every guys. Week. <laughs> I want to see who takes the other one down. Uh, anyway, that was our first, well, actually our second, I guess, contest. The right. first one that it's anyone will actually receive one. an award. Yeah, so... the first one where the award was actually mailed out. The thing I've got it, like, <laughs> It's all boxed and packaged up and everything, and all I have to do is go to the post office and drop it off. And the post oh, office God, doesn't Darryl. even have to be open because they've got like one of those automated ones. Man, Daryl, I thought I was lazy, but you beat me. I think it took me about two years to send tapes to Ryan Gavigan to get copies <laughs> of like Roadbuster and stuff. <laughs> Oh, God. I'm just very bad at going to the post office. You realize now that you can buy postage online, so all you have to do is go to a post box and drop it in. You don't even have to go to the post office. I don't know where any just post boxes are. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, well. Anyway, I guess that's about it for the... uh, I can hand-deliver the package to Ryan Gavigan, and then he can take it back, and then once, like, Ohio Con rolls around... Just hand it to Jeff to Oh God! <laughs> Force him to have to go to Ohio. Oh, jeez. I think that's about enough of letters. Is there, so. is there any news this week? Yes, there is. There's very important news as well. So, without further ado, let's news. Working to restore power. Okay, a major illustrator passed away. He was actually an animation director and an animator. This was Koichi Murata. He actually worked on Panda Copanda and And of Green Gables, Swiss Family Robinson, and some older shows. He worked a lot with things that Miyazaki Miyazaki got their start Mm -hmm. off on. Right, Toshio Suzuki as well. He was only about 67, so not really that old. But yeah, unfortunately, that's a Sad loss. And also, anime as we know it is now dead. Less manly. Yeah. Much, much less manly. I'm very sad to report that Ken Ishikawa has died. Ken Ishikawa Aww. was the co creator of Get a Robo, and he was only 58 years old. He's sometimes called the protege of Gonagai. He was almost like Gonagai. 1.5. It was like Gonagai's right-hand man. Right. And so many of the things that Gonagai created, he was right there with him. Like I said, Get a Robo was basically his thing. Cutie Honey, he was a co-creator on. He was a story concept of Great Mazinger. So many of these big things. We owe a lot to Kenishikawa for the really sort of dark, violent side of Gonagai's work. And now that he's gone, the Moe hordes are just going to storm in. It's a matter of days before Dynamic Productions just starts kicking out the maid shit now. Yeah. Because who's uh... got going to guys back anymore? <laughs> yeah, really. It was all Kenny Shikawa. Right. It's Go Nagai and Kenny Shikawa with tomahawks and drills for hands, <laughs> just slaughtering just the Zerg rush of maids that are just battering down the door. Kazuo Koike and Gonagai need to team up again. And... Kekeke made Orashu. 
So yeah, it's strange because he just collapsed. It wasn't like he was very sick or anything. He went for uh, some karaoke and came back and died. It's very sad, and we're very that sad to see to you go. That seems to happen a lot for Japanese dudes. They just seem okay, and then all of a sudden, boom, Bam. they're dead. And maybe on to some marginally lighter news. There was a box set released by Funimation, which contained several of the Lupin OAVs and Lupin TV specials. And one of them that it contained was The Secret of the Twilight Gemini. They actually released two versions of this Funimation did, an edited and an unedited version. Apparently these boxes contained the edited version when they should have contained the unedited version. So this is just for anybody out there who happened to pick these up. If you picked up one of these, send your name and your phone number to orders at zstore.com and put Lupin Movie Replacement in the subject line. Just for reference, how would people know easily whether or not they had an edited version of Twilight Gemini or not? Twilight Gemini had about five nude scenes in that. But it doesn't like say on the packaging that it's um, edited or anything? Un unfortunately, I don't have like a scene-for-scene -scene deal or any other information about that. All I know is that I believe that every set that came out had the edited version in it. Fortunately, Funimation's at least doing exchanges of it. It's yeah. not like, well, sorry, take what you got. <laughs> yeah, they're not Bandai. So. Yeah, really. Bandai would be like, oh, well, edited version is better. There you go. Suck it up, fanboys. <laughs> yeah. In other news, we have got some pictures of the Gunbuster DVD box set out. This is something that I'm looking forward to greatly. It is now out on the Right Stuff website, so you can go there and check it out, or you can just go to tinyurl.com slash y6692g. So check those out. This box looks really cool. Also, as another sort of interesting little thing, we were talking last week, actually, about some of the big new shows of the year, Death Note being one of them. And interestingly enough, a show called Hataraki Man beat out Death Note in the ratings, even though it was in a very similar time slot. And this is actually very unusual, because, as we were saying, Death Note was kind of the big show. Everybody was looking for this. Mm -hmm. And Death Note got a 3.1% rating. Death Note was actually around the 2 a.m. time slot or so. Mm -hmm. And this one got almost 5%, and this was around the 1.30 in the morning time slot. Hmm. And yet, no, it's fan-subbing cool. it. Yeah. yeah, this isn't I've... the first time we've seen this, of course. I Actually, mean... wait, no, isn't somebody fan-subbing Hatadaki Man? I be. thought I'd seen screenshots with subs. Let's find out. So, I've heard some people talking about it, so I figured that there were subs. There are at least two episodes that have been subbed, but okay. the second episode came out weeks ago, and they're on, like, episode six in Japan right now. Mm. Yeah, I think it's going slow, but I think... It's being subbed. Yeah. That was one that I didn't get around to, but I've actually heard some good things about it. It's actually called Onna no Hataraki Man, Female Working Man. That was very surprising because I hadn't really heard anything about this show, and then suddenly I hear that it's beating out the biggest show of the new season. I wonder if what I mentioned about Death Note, like if you've already read the manga, it kind of takes a lot of the suspense out of it. I wonder if that's having any effect on Death Note's ratings. I have no idea. As a rule, I mean, it doesn't seem to when you think of yeah. the other Shonen Jump adaptations that are also pretty similar. But I think usually most of those series are usually like fighting series, in which case, even if you've already read the manga, a lot of people still like to watch it to see the fights animated. Whereas mm -hmm. in Death Note, you don't really have those kind of fights or action scenes. It's mostly people talking. 
So right. the draw is mostly the story, not necessarily. Yeah, so maybe it's more easily affected by that. And also that because it's so much about logically outwitting each other and the twists in the story, I think maybe, I don't know, it has the potential to suffer a lot more from the surprise from... being taken out of it. Yeah, maybe I can see that. It's just one, one of those things to show yeah. how different the fans in Japan are, what they like, versus what we like here. Yeah. One example I can think of... Blackjack TV that yep. replaced Inuyasha. And well, Blackjack is huge in Japan, like crazy. But you couldn't find anyone who'd subtitle that other than Frothbite when they were really bored. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then nobody would download it here anyway. Airmaster that was being aired at the same time with Wolf's Rain. Wolf's Rain and Stelvia and, and stuff Stel like that. That same season, and it did yeah. better than all those. But much both of better. Those got licensed. And Airmaster got crappy licensed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just never really know what it's going to be for the next season. Yeah. ADV Films had an interesting little trick on their website. I don't know if it'll actually be active by the time that this episode gets released, but we've got a save of the website if you want to check it out. They apparently licensed Kerodo Gunso, Sergeant Frog, the TV series. Oh, cool. And that's and like... One of the biggest things going in Japan. Yeah. Right. And it's relatively unusual for ADV to license a very long show that is still running in Japan. Sergeant Frog, what I've seen of it was pretty fun. Yeah, um, it's a really funny show. It's super popular among the hardcore mm -hmm. otaku in Japan because yeah. there's a lot of references yeah. to Gundam. That... I think it's a much right. funnier show the more anime you've watched because there are so many in-jokes and references. Yeah, I'd like to mention that Kerro, the main character in the series is a massive fan of Gundam models. So that instantly makes him a winner in my book. Yeah. <laughs> right. If anybody watched the Densha Otsuko J drama, they were huge fans of, of Sergeant Kedido Frog Gunso, in yeah. that. They had yeah. all kinds of things like on their shirts and they'd have little trinkets on their phone yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. Because that was the thing they were crazy about. Right. It's definitely a show for hardcore fans. I'm not sure how well it'll do here. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's I such a long show. Yeah. I don't know how popular the fan subs are. I know the manga's coming out here, but I don't know the sales figures on that. The manga's pretty popular. Yeah. I know that the so... manga actually got some advertisement on television. Maybe it's working out somehow. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I guess we'll see. On with the rest of the show. I remember watching the trailer for Koei Kaze at uh, Otakon, and... This could be like an interesting character drama. You've got the older man and then the younger woman and maybe they're like forced to live together and they have to learn how to get along with each other even though they're from vastly different generations. Kind of like would, the little girl in Panda Go Panda. We're not going to talk about that again. Which would be like a pretty good show considering the situation of Japan today where there's this incredible generational gap. But instead, no, it's about finding your little sister's panties in the dryer and then rubbing them all over your face while you masturbate in the bathroom. Yeah! As soon as I saw Koei Kaze on the screen, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> Dave and Joel's Best Karate for the Gentleman. The anime podcast for people who don't like anime. Or podcasts. Find us online at www.daveandjoel.com.
in show number one, we were talking about how we all got our starts as anime fans, and I mentioned that since VHS tapes cost so much back then, I would actually rent instead of buy tapes. I'd rent from the local comic book shop. One day, my dad and I went to this video store, and I rented two tapes, which I'd never really heard much about. One of them was chosen by my dad. It was the old LA Hero release of Raven Tengu Kabuto. That totally sucked. I've never seen it since. I get the feeling that if I ever see it again, there's a 50% chance that I'll think it's awesome, because Raven Tengu Kabuto is by Buichi Terasawa. <laughs> and he's about two or three notches below Kazuo Koike level. He did Space Adventure Koga. But the other tape I rented, that was on the recommendation of a friend of mine who hadn't actually seen the anime himself, but he had heard it was cool, and that's what I'm going to review here. The Dagger of Kamui. The Dagger Kamui was a theatrical film from 1985. It was animated by Madhouse Studios, which is a very famous animation studio that tons of people know about because their work is pretty high quality. Clarissa was talking about Madhouse last week. But essentially, The Dagger Kamui is an action-adventure movie with ninjas in it. Uh, with a premise like that, anything ninja, you'd think... <laughs> it's gotta be good! You'd think more people would remember it, but this is relatively unknown, and there are some various reasons for that that I'm mm -hmm. gonna go into right now. First and foremost in my book is just the simple fact that it was released by Anime Ego. They may have been King of the Mountain in decades past, but nowadays, I bet most anime fans don't even know they exist. Think about it, their slogan at the time this came out was, The best movies you'll ever read. Mm -hmm. So you probably are not going to find too many of their anime releases in stores anymore, since many of them were sub-only. Or if they had dubs, their dubs were terrible. Mm. <laughs> the second reason is that Madhouse Studios had another ninja movie out in America around the same time, got released around the same time here, that they made years afterwards. Maybe you heard of it, Ninja Scroll. That one, along with things like Akira, Ghost in the Shell, it's one of the single most popular anime in America of all time. Well, Ninja Scroll came years later. It was made years later, but I'm talking about when it was released in America. Even then, Dagger of Kamui in some form had been out here for like a decade. I'm getting to that, but I'm talking about <laughs> Anime Ego's release. In any case, I never really dug Ninja Scroll that much. Oddly enough, it seems like it would be something I'd like a lot, but I never really got into it. But compared to Ninja Scroll, since everyone's seen Ninja Scroll, Dagger Kamui is much less graphic in its content. It's probably a lot less visually accessible because of its art style. And quite honest, most anime fans find it stupendously boring. A lot less rape. Yeah, this movie... The Dagger Kamui is very long. It's over two hours, and as Gerald had mentioned, prior to Anime Ego's release, had been released in various edited formats under different names like Revenge of the Ninja Warrior. That was the version I first saw. Or The Blade of Kamui, and in those sort of things, they'd do something like they'd cut 40 minutes out of the movie, or they'd give it an awful dub. Maybe Blade of Kamui wasn't cut. And in no, case, Blade of Kamui wasn't cut, but Revenge of the Ninja Warrior was amazing because it was set on a different planet. Yes. That's what I mean when I say they'd give it an awful dub. Anyway, on top of all that, The Dagger of Kamui is directed by one of anime's most famous directors of all time, Rintaro. He's been working pretty much since the beginning of the modern anime era. I'm talking about the 60s, Astro Boy, that sort of thing. But, as we mentioned on this show, the thing about Rintaro is that he's very polarizing. His movies are either great or they're awful, and nobody can agree on which of his movies are great and which ones are <laughs> awful. Yep. For example, 
I personally, I love Metropolis. I think Armageddon is weak. Gerald thinks the exact opposite. Mm. Yeah. So with Rintaro's movies, you tend to either love them or hate them. And yeah. most people really hate this movie. I don't. <laughs> this movie, Dagger Kamui, it's essentially an adaptation of a long-running series of novels, not by Sanpei Shirado. Yeah, I yeah, got that wrong. It's not by him. Uh, he'd mentioned that he'd done The Legend of Kamui, which is a manga. Right. That was released long, long ago here. But no, this is based off of a long-running series of novels by Tetsuyano, who, interestingly enough, is remembered as being Japan's very first science fiction fan. After World War II, he was going to America to beat Worldcon, that sort of thing. And he primarily wrote sci-fi fantasy. He translated lots of the famous American sci-fi novels, or rather, I should say the famous English-language sci-fi novels, into Japanese. He did Heinlein. He did Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is more pulp adventure, but you get the idea. In any case, this is an action-adventure piece. It's not really speculative fiction. I think the best way to describe it would be historical fiction. It takes place in Japan in the mid-1800s, which is near the end of the Tokugawa period. That's also known as the Edo period of Japanese history. So that's around the same time that, say, Lone Wolf and Cub or Samurai Executioners take place. Pretty much every samurai movie takes well, usually uses this. Well, there. This one is before the Meiji era, and the right. Meiji era, which is when Lady Snowblood and Rurouni Kenshin happen. Yeah, so, yeah. The movie itself, to actually talk about it, is about a young boy named Jiro, who's half Japanese and half Ainu. Ainu, or what's the other word? Utari, if you prefer. They're basically the Japanese equivalent of Native Americans. The indigenous population of Japan, they got mostly wiped out, much like our Native Americans, and they're subject to intense racism even today. Mm -hmm. If you're of Ainu descent and you live in Japan, that's probably something you hide from everybody, if you can help it. So, Jiro is half Ainu, and on top of that, he's adopted. So he's not exactly the most popular kid in his village. <laughs> the very beginning of the movie, Jiro comes home, he finds his foster family all killed, and Amidst their bodies is a really elaborate large dagger, which is where the movie's name comes from. Of course, by his luck, the second he picks up the dagger to inspect it, everybody else in the village spots him holding the dagger, sees all the dead bodies, they conclude that filthy half-breed must have murdered his family and should therefore be summarily executed right there on the spot. So Jiro's got to run for it. As he's escaping, Jiro encounters a gigantic, huge, towering Buddhist monk named Tenkai. Tenkai is a member of the Oniwabanshu. If you don't remember them from Ruroni Kenshin, the Oniwabanshu were a ninja clan. Rather, I should say a shinobi clan. I don't think the word ninja is actually used in this movie. But they would specialize in performing various ninja shenanigans, or ninjanigans, as I call them, for the Tokugawa shogunate. Tenkai, he knows that Jiro was framed and that the real killer was, in fact, an enemy shinobi. So he takes Jiro in, offers to have him be trained as a shinobi himself, while Tenkai looks into the matter of who Jiro's real parents are. And that's when we get the classic 1980s-style training montage. Several years end up passing as Jiro learns ninja skills, mainly how to cut grizzly bears in half with one swipe of a dagger, be it horizontally or vertically. That's part of his training montage. Yeah, at some point, you've got to fight bears. Yes. This movie's like a got a lot of modern-day internet entities. Bears is one of those things. <laughs> and ninjas. That's the other one, yes. too. By Are the there time, dinosaurs? Not quite. No, By the okay. time Jiro's all grown up, though, 
And of course, Jiro's grown up at the end of this training montage. Tenkai informs him that he's discovered who Jiro's real parents are, and he tells him that Jiro's father was himself, a shinobi. So Jiro sets out to get some leads, but he quickly discovers that he's been lied to, and that he's being used by everybody as a tool to help locate a hidden treasure. And I don't mean some kind of weak sauce, Lupin the Third treasure, I mean like a treasure on the level of the One Piece. In fact, mild spoiler, the treasure basically is the One Piece. <laughs> so Jiro becomes what's known as a New Kanan, which is a runaway ninja. Of course, runaway ninja have to be hunted down and killed by the rest of the clan, as anyone who's ever watched ninja movies or played fighting games knows. So Jiro's got to run for it. Again. Only now, he's got his mad ninja skills, and it's a big race to get to the treasure. Only thing is, the clues for the treasure are written in English, and the map to the treasure isn't even of Japan. So Jiro has to go travel across the world on his quest, and along the way he meets up with a bunch of actual historical figures, the one everyone here loses their shit over is that he meets motherfucking Mark Twain, mm -hmm. introduces himself as Mark Twain, even though Mark Twain was a pen name, his real name is yep. Samuel Clemens. <laughs> but the Japanese probably thought it was far more nuts for him to meet Ando Shozan. Anyway, Jiro ends up contributing to bringing about events that actually took place, such as the Bakamatsu, and mm -hmm. that's the revolution that brought about the Meiji era, once again covered in Rurouni Kenshin. Mm -hmm. It's not the key point of the story, but it ends up being the consequences of what happens. It's in the background. That's kind of the nature of historical fiction, a lot of them, such as Rose of Versailles. It's fictional characters interacting with real people amidst real occurrences, that sort of thing. Anyway, because this movie is adapted from several novels, and the story spans years, there's a lot of time compression of events in this movie. And I think that's certainly where a lot of the issues people have with the pacing come from. But again, I think a lot of these people who see this movie are kind of expecting another Ninja Scroll. And it's not just one fight after the next, the way Ninja Scroll is. Personally, I think the story rocks. I'm not bored by it at all. I think it's just awesome how he's just going all over the world and back again, and he builds up his crew of comrades, and he finds out how all these people are interconnected to him. I think it's epic. And, mm -hmm. like we said, it's got ninjas, it's got bears, plus it's got pirates, and <laughs> cowboys. Yes. And some dudes who kind of look like zombies, they're more like zombie <laughs> ninjas. That about covers oh, man. a lot of the internet factions of greatness right yes. there. Yes. But, like I said at the start, this is a love it or hate it kind of movie, and you'll know if you love or you hate it pretty much within the first few minutes. If you're big into Ninja Scroll and Rurouni Kenshin, and you're expecting something like that, chances are very, very high that you're going to hate this movie, or be bored to sleep by it. I've gone long enough without mentioning it, so I have to bring it up. I think the single most polarizing aspect of this movie has got to be the visuals. The Dagger of Kamui, much like Requiem from the Darkness, which I reviewed, and Gankutsuo, which I'm going to review in the future, it's one of those things that looks like nothing else out there. Everything is very, very stylized cell animation, and even though there's no shortage of limbs and bodies being cut to pieces, there's very little in the way of blood and gore. I personally love it. A lot of people find it unwatchable. We've heard similar things about Requiem from the Darkness and Gankutsuo, maybe even Paradise Kiss. That's a new one. But as I repeatedly state on this podcast, I personally don't pay a great deal of attention to the artwork other than the basic information of, like, shot of a house, boat, <laughs> guy running. This artwork did catch my attention, though. It's very unique. I'll post pictures of it in the show notes. But pictures may not convey 
the whole story, because a lot of the beauty of this film actually comes from the animation itself, the movement of it. It's actually kind of strangely hypnotic, especially when you combine it with the music, which is another very polarizing element, because the music for this movie is also very distinctive. There's nothing else like it. You hear the music from this, and it's like, that's music from the Dagger of Comedy. Because it's a combination of the traditional Japanese instruments, like, say, the flute or the taiko drums, that sort of thing, along with more modern instruments. When I say modern, I mean modern for the 1980s, so electric guitar and tribal chanting. And the guitar riffs and the cinematography really betray the 80s-ness of this movie. But I've known a few people who found the tribal chanting in the soundtrack extremely obnoxious. Because you tend to hear it whenever ninjas are fighting or whenever ninjas are running. And this is a movie about ninjas, so there's a lot of both of that. Me, I like it. I think in terms of comparing it to uh, other ninja-related anime, I think the shinobi in this are slightly inhuman in what they do, but they're not quite completely inhuman ninjas, the way you'd see them in Ninja Scroll, or maybe half the cast of Naruto. It's not like there's ninjas made of solid rock, or the ever-popular bugs in my skin, or there's <laughs> motherfucking snakes or centipedes in the cooter. No, <laughs> no ninjas like that, necessarily here as popular as those are overall i strongly recommend this film i'm really glad it still holds up just as well now as it did when i first saw it back when i was a teenager and i found so often that's not the case i'd actually go so far as to say this is probably among my favorite ninja movies of all time if not my favorite ninja movie even though it actually mm -hmm. we were talking about this earlier it kind of feels more like a samurai film because of the epic nature of it most ninja movies are kind of goofy exploitative stuff again Rintaro is an awfully divisive guy but if I were capable of making one of those personal top 10 anime movies list this would be a definite contender for being somewhere on that list I can never actually figure out what order to rank things in unfortunately for myself but I understand where the massive hate for this film comes from let's face it when people want to see ninja movies when they think ninja flicks they want to see guys flipping out they want to see throwing shurikens and certainly there's lots of that in this movie too but they also definitely have to throw in the very essential element of having like some white guy getting to bang some Asian chick and maybe blow up some jeeps for 90 minutes yeah Asian women can never have consensual sex with Asian men in movies not even in porno because Asian men are either non-sexual or rapists. That's the rule <laughs> that you have learned from the anime world order for today. Anyway, this movie's not a popcorn flick. You have to sit down, you have to pay attention to it. And since it's subtitled, that doesn't help for the turn-off-your-brain crowd either. As for where to get this movie, you can buy it new on DVD, online for about 10 to 15 bucks. Right Stuff, they tend to have it in stock. A lot of times they put it on sale every so often. Since it's an anime ego release, it does come with printed liner notes explaining the cultural and the historical references. It lists the song lyrics. They do all that stuff that nobody nowadays actually cares to throw in for the most part. I own this movie on tape. I own it on DVD. I probably paid like $30 for it on DVD for all I can remember. I have no regrets for that. I have kind of a little story about this movie. When I was really young, I used to hold sleepovers for my birthday. 
even back then when I was like eight or ten years old, I was the kid that showed the Japanimation. And this was one of them that I showed. This is actually one of the first ones that I ever showed. Everyone who I had over was absolutely just couldn't take their eyes off the screen at this. And they were watching the Revenge of the Ninja Warrior, the bad dubbed version of it. Even if they mangle the story and butcher out a lot of the violence, I mean, the look of the film is still unlike anything you'd ever seen before, especially back then. Yeah, Even especially now. then. You were mentioning this as well, of how divisive this... I have seen this movie on more top ten best and worst anime lists than any other thing that I can think of. Yeah, you see it showing up as best anime ever, you also see it showing up as worst anime ever. Yep, I can't think of any other thing that this happens to as much as this movie. Bottom line, this movie's awesome, go watch it. on iTunes, MySpace, Bison Mall, and any of the five plants of the Pentagona system. See you later. ago, I asked all the listeners out there whether or not I should take a look at something that is really obscure. As a general rule, most often the stuff that we look at are pretty obscure to begin with, but this one is one that is particularly out there. This is largely because the show that I'm going to talk about has never been fan-subbed, there's never been scripts for it, and so far nobody has ever digisubbed it. So most younger fans nowadays would probably not bother with a show that is raw, and they'd probably, you know, opt to go with the myriad of other shows that are easier to find in English, and I can't really blame them for that. The show I'm going to look at 
is one that I've been sort of teasing people for a long time with, and that's Mirai Keisatsu Urashiman, or Future Police Urashiman. This is a 50-episode television series from 1983 that was done by Tatsunoko. Tatsunoko might be most well-known for the Gachaman franchise. The story itself follows a young man who is just minding his own business while being chased by the police in modern-day Tokyo, and by modern-day Tokyo, I mean Tokyo in 1983, while driving his awesome 1983 Volkswagen Bug with his cat Mia, when he almost gets in a car accident, but then is suddenly saved by the sequence that is very much inspired by acid trips, in which he goes forward into the future in 2050, or as the Japanese would say, time slips to 2050, so he nearly escapes a car crash in 1983 and immediately crashes into another car in 2050. To make this easier, the young man is named Urashima Ryu, after the character Urashima from Japanese folklore, which is about a man who is basically like the uh, Japanese Rip Van Winkle. He actually uh, is led away by this turtle, and then he comes back, and it's 300 years later. Anyway, Ryu crashes into this car. This car is driven by the policeman Claude Mizusawa. Claude is played by the very awesome Akira Kamiya, a lady killer by any standards, because even though the very first scene between the main character Ryu and Claude is them accidentally kissing each other. <laughs> Although Claude what? makes up for this. Yeah. It, it's not that type of show, but yeah, that's the very first time they meet. So it's like in Naruto, when like Naruto and Sasuke kind of get like shoved into each other and kiss accidentally? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And, well, Claude makes up for this because, you know, immediately after that, this beautiful woman drives by in a car, and he gives her the eye, and then she just goes insane and then crashes her car. So, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, Claude is is a very cool guy. Anyway... Oh, wait, Ryu... is this like a Fist of the North Star so terrible it's it's awesome show? No, this is so awesome it's awesome. Fist of the North Star is so awesome okay. it's awesome as well. <laughs> <laughs> Ryu recovers and he realizes that he doesn't know who he is or where he is. And the only thing that he knows is that he has a cat named Meow. And that's it. So his cat is basically named Meow? That's it. Wow. What better name to name a cat? Kitty. Really. <laughs> Apparently, this time slip that Ryu went through was planned to some degree because as soon as he arrives and meets Claude, he's thrown into jail, then is very quickly broken out. And then Ryu is chased by a group of rather evil characters known as Neckcrime. Now, Neckcrime is, well, stay with me on this, is headed up by a mysterious figure named Neo Fuhrer, <laughs> who's whose first in command is the debonair and suave Adolf von Ludwig, who th almost is never ever seen in the entire show without a glass of wine. What is with Japan and Nazis? They love them. Can't get yeah. enough. <laughs> Why they wish they'd have won. <laughs> Ludwig is played with, you know, suaveness and style by the late Kaneto Shiozawa. Miren, Jitanda, Ano Toko Tsuretakurunota. 
どんな手を使っても構わん。You might remember Kaneda Shiozawa as the voice of Ray from Fist of the North Star, or the original D from Vampire Hunter D, and tons of other characters. Or Ie-san from I No Kusabi. Yeah, he's most well known for playing very beautiful men. Yes. Also, Ludwig's partner is the very sexy Mireille Sabrerior, played by Kitahama Haruko, who is known as the female half of Baron Ashura. What are you thinking, Ludwig? Let's take a look. And they also have a servant who is a midget named Jitanda. And Jitanda is complete with a suit and an afro. And of course, Necrime has also got the hired guns named Bear, Eagle, Sniper Wolf, I'm not kidding, Cat, and others. Now, Necrime wants Ryu so badly because when somebody undergoes a time slip and slips into the future, They gain superpowers. Unfortunately,、so、this happens on a frequent basis. This is some sort of logical conclusion that they came to. Okay. Unfortunately, I, I assume that the reason that they did this act would sort of give away the ending of the show. <laughs> unfortunately, they don't know what superpowers he has or when he'll display these superpowers. And in fact, Ryu is quite certain that he doesn't have any superpowers. But that doesn't matter because they just need to get hold of him. And well, you know, Claude is there too, trying to capture Ryu. So they might as well capture Claude as well. Just so you know, I'm kind of taking you through the, about the first two episodes here. Anyway, Ryu and Claude hide out in a church that is operated by the very kind-hearted, or so she says, nun Sophia Nina Rose. Kamisama! Kamisama, o t a s k e k u d a s a i Mayoeru kora o s k u i k u d a s a i 私も懸命にあなたのしもべになるよう努めてまいりましたでも私は Who also gets caught up in the battle with Necrime The city of Neo-Tokyo which is what Tokyo is called in the year 2050 notices their efforts and recruits them to be part of the Magna Police Force headed up by Inspector Gondo Inspector Gondo is basically one mustache and afro away from being a stereotypical police chief in a 1970s cop show although he never ever says hand in your badge That would put him right there. You're a loose cannon. I can't believe、yeah. people still write those scenes to this day. <laughs> <laughs> you're off the case. Turn in your badge and your gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I say that because he's always just every single scene with Gondo is just him screaming at the crew. Every single one of them. ゴンドウ警部とは一体何者で給料は上がりますかはいよ行けばいい And this is the crew of future police Urashima. So, Ryu, Claude, and Sophia must battle against the forces of Necrime, while at the same time Ryu is trying to figure out who he really is, what, if any, powers he has, and get used to being in the year 2050. Speaking of which, everyone in the year 2050 drives cars that hover. Because after all, it is the future. Apparently, however, driving one of these cars is almost impossible for a man from 1983, so he takes his 1983 Volkswagen bug and soups it up with things like a more powerful engine, armor, and even an ejector seat. Urashiman 
is a show that was extremely popular with older fans and was very well looked upon by many of those fans. In fact, I actually happened to chat with Matt Greenfield, who is a, a, a co-founder of um, AD Vision, and he apparently was a super fan of the show, too. The reason for this, I believe, is because the show had extremely well-fleshed-out characters and a very interesting storyline. I've actually gone this far without actually stating what sort of show Future Police Urashiman is, and it's definitely a comedy. It, Ryu is very much a dork of the show, and he has to take a lot of crap from Claude and Sophia, but is always a really interesting and really likable character. And Claude is an asshole. Even though he considers himself a ladies' man, he actually has very little luck with ladies, and Sophia is really, really angry at the guys all the time. Even the villains in the show are extremely well-established. I was actually talking with uh, Michiko Ito, whom we had an interview with very recently, about this show, and she taught me a new phrase. She said that villains fall into two categories, and that is the kyagara tatsu, which means the character is established, and kyagara tatenai, which means the character is not established. And the character of Ludwig is very well established. They have entire episodes in the show that are nothing but about Ludwig's backstory and how he became what he is, what his motivations are, as well as for the character Neo Fuhrer. And, you know, I've got nothing wrong with villains like Dr. Hell from Mazinger, who all you have to know is Dr. Hell wants to destroy Mazinger and take over the world, and that's all you have to know. But I think a show like Rashomon really benefits from having fleshed out villains, because there's so many more levels of enjoyment to it. The show itself is a little bit unusual in that for 90% of the show, the animation is relatively good 1983 television quality animation. It's not spectacular, it gets very nice at times, but suddenly, for whatever reason, for one episode, episode 26 in particular, the show enters this unbelievable dimension. One episode looks literally like movie-quality animation. And this is because Koji Morimoto directed an episode of this. For those of you who don't know, we mentioned Koji Morimoto on some previous shows, and we actually said that he was a student of Katsuhiro Otomo. Katsuhiro Otomo directed uh, Akira and most recently uh, uh, Steam Boy. In fact, that's actually inaccurate. Koji Morimoto was actually working in animation before Otomo ever started. And he was actually very much influenced by two other animators, one of which actually worked on this show, Urashiman, Takeshi Nakamura, and the other one, Yoshinori Kanda. And I'm, I'm throwing kind of a lot of names out there, so it might get a bit confusing. Uh, Takeshi Nakamura actually directed Fantastic Children, which I reviewed in show number 28. And Nakamura is a very significant figure in animation. He was actually, I believe, the animation director for Urashiman. He made very big strides in basically designs of animation and distinguishing animation from directing. And Yoshinori Kanda is a guy whom I could probably talk a lot about. He animated some of the major sequences in Final Yamato. He animated the 1979 opening of Cyborg 009 and uh, the opening of uh, Genesis Climber Mospita. Mm -hmm. uh, he invented a lot of very, very unique styles in anime. He was very influential. He's a guy that a lot of people don't really know about. I know a lot of people are listening to this episode while they're in their car, and I've thrown out a lot of names, so it's probably very confusing right now. But if you happen to be in front of your computer and your boss isn't looking over your shoulder or anything, go to tinyurl.com slash y7amn9. Let me say that again. y7amn9. 
N9. This is a scene from episode 26 that I was just talking about. You'll actually get to see just how detailed and fluid this animation was. This was, I believe, one of the very first works that Koji Morimoto directed. He would go on to work on such things as the Order to Stop Construction segment from Neo Tokyo. He was an animator of, on Dagger of Kamui, which we're actually looking at in this episode. And he was a director of the Beyond segment of Animatrix. Most importantly, in my opinion, he directed the Magnetic Rose segment from Memories. And this was basically his start. I really could go on about these animators, but this segment is about future police Urashiman as a whole. Yeah, I could, and I I should... could talk about Koji Morimoto for like an entire segment. The Super 4C <laughs> stuff alone yeah. is just yeah. incredible. Yeah, and this is basically where he started, and it really shows. But I really should emphasize that this whole show is a really awesome show. It's just episode 26 in particular that I'm kind of gushing about because it's so gorgeous. But I don't want to make the rest of the show sound like it's not a good show. And if you couldn't tell, Future Police Urashimon is a really great and really fun show. I couldn't say that it's a show that will change your life, but I think it's an extremely solid, very entertaining show with a very solid plot that develops into something. And characters that are enjoyable to watch, characters that, are, that have got backgrounds and that you care about. Now, there are some episodes of this that are pretty strange, such as an episode involving a businessman that's trying to have the tallest mountain in the world by blowing off the top of Mount Everest so his mountain is higher. Or <laughs> a surfing episode involving a demonic wave called Big Saturday that actually appears on a Friday. An episode involving some sharks that only go after beautiful young girls. Things like that. But here's the thing. I've just given the show a pretty positive review, and the big issue is, how is anybody listening to this actually going to check the show out? It's not like a lot of the other reviews that we do, where pretty much everything else we talk about, you're able to download a digisub of it, or a scan of it, or you can go out and buy the DVD. If you wanted to go and watch Urashiman legitimately, the R2 DVDs of this, the Japanese DVDs, came out in two parts, and they're $300 a box set, and they're out of print. So it's sort of a hard show to find. So Which means there's no one who can write in and say that you're incorrect. <laughs> That's true. But, Brilliant! You know, <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to upload several episodes of the show. Specifically, I'm going to upload the first couple, and I'm going to upload a smattering of episodes throughout the show, including that episode 26, so people have a good idea of what to expect. I do actually have the Japanese discs of this. I didn't pay $300 a box for them. So I could upload the rolls of the show, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to upload the Hong Kong subs of this so that people have got some idea of what's going on because it is a pretty heavy dialogue-based show. What's the status in terms of readability of these subtitles? The first half of the show, which I'm going to upload the episodes from, are relatively readable. The character names are wrong, but you can pretty much hear the characters and their names. They, for example, call the main character Ryu when he's subtitled as Urashima. But it's not like you can't understand what's going on. If there's enough interest, I'll upload more episodes. Who knows, maybe someone out there will take it upon themselves and actually upload better subs, because maybe they know more Japanese than I do, which means they know some Japanese. Um, <laughs> we'll put the link in it to our show notes. Go and download those. Check out a couple of episodes. And if you really like what you see, email me back. And like I said, if I get enough of a response, I'll upload some more. That's about as much as I have to say. But I really have to thank 
Tim Eldred, Michael Wishlow, and Michiko Ito for helping me out with this because I can't speak Japanese and they really helped me out with getting some of the character names and some of the directors and things like that that I just couldn't read because there's very little information about this show out there. So yeah, I highly recommend the show. It's probably one of the most obscure things that we've looked at, but it really deserves to uh, get another look. Or a look. Mm. Well, a second generation. I guess you guys don't have a whole lot to say. Well, I haven't seen enough of the show. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, haven't I watched, saw, like, so... maybe the first ten or something like that, because they actually did have raw encodes of this up on WinMX or one yeah, of those old yeah. file-sharing programs. There were some Japanese users who had raw episodes, and Mike Tool found this because... Urashimon is kind of one of those forgotten shows that Neil mm-hmm. Nadelman and Mike love to find. In fact, there was a dub of Urashimon made for Europe. It was called Rockin' Cop. That was the German version. But yes, they did make that, and if I'm not mistaken, it was in English because Richard Epcar was in it. I don't know if he's ever found that dub. I'm guessing it's one of those things that the dub was made, but it was never really played other than like as a pilot to shop around to places so finding a copy is quite difficult right so yeah urashimon download those episodes tell us what you think and i guess check it out radioactive cinder floating in the frozen heart of space, and mankind has long since ceased to be. I take comfort in the fact that if the alien anthropologists excavate the remains of our shattered civilization, they will no doubt be able to learn everything they needed to know about human beings from a single, solitary movie. Which movie? Weekend at Bernie's 2. www.fearthegooberzilla.com The greatest movie ever podcast. Alright guys, what I'm doing this segment on is a uh, pretty sprawling monstrosity of a series. It's called Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, and it's written by Adaki Hirohiko. Some old school fans may be familiar with Anaki through another work of his from 1984 called Bao, which uh, was released, I believe, in the early 90s over here. Anime Ego. Yeah. yeah. Both, I think, the OAV and the manga yeah, have been released, released here. The manga. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think, a decently well-known title back then, so some of you guys that watched a lot of those early 90s releases may recognize Bao. So this was one of his early works. And in 1987, 
a few years after Bao, he started what is his most well-known and his most major work, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, or Jojo no Kimio Naboken. It's also, I believe, translated as Jojo's Venture. The manga started in 1987, and it is still going. It is one of the longest shonen manga series in existence. In fact, I believe that it's Shonen Jump's second longest series. It's at 80 plus volumes. Second I think only there's to only Kochikame. Yes, and it's been running in Shonen Jump for a long time, although just recently it actually moved from Shonen Jump into Ultra Jump. Yeah, it kind of seems like it should have been an Ultra Jump. <laughs> yeah, probably. Of that label. Yeah, I think it probably works a little better in there. This series, as you can imagine, being so huge is quite popular and has inspired a ton of stuff. There's been several different adaptations of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. There's been anime adaptations. There's been video games. Most people over here would probably be familiar with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure through the video game from the Dreamcast and the uh, arcade. It was a fighting game based off of one of the sections of JoJo's, and that game was pretty popular, I believe. Capcom and uh, game. yes, yeah. there have been a couple of other JoJo's video games, but they haven't come out over here. They've only been in Japan. One of which just came out. Yes, it just came out at the end of October. That one is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Phantom Blood, which is actually relevant to what I'm talking about. See, the thing is that, like I said, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure has been running for over 80 volumes, but I'm not actually going to be talking about the whole series, because JoJo's Bizarre Adventure works a little differently from a lot of other manga series, especially most other shonen fighting series. It isn't one long title. I mean, everything in it is interconnected, but it's not like, say, Naruto or Fullmetal Alchemist, where it's just one long, ongoing, unbroken series. The series is broken up into, at this point, seven different parts, if you count the currently running thing, which is Steel Ball Run. It's not actually called JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. It's called Steel Ball Run, but it's basically the seventh part of these JoJo's. These parts are basically different enough that you could almost consider them separate manga. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's what I was just about to say, is that a lot of these shonen series can be broken up into different story arcs. Like, I know in Fist of the North Star, you've got, say, the beginning arc with Shin, and then later on you've got other arcs that are about, say, Rao, or Souther, or Souza. Souther. <laughs> yes. Or Naruto, you can kind of break things up into, say, the Zabuza and Haku arc, and the uh, Chunin Exam arc. But really, all that that is, is just breaking breaking the series down by subplots within the series. The Hokuto no Ken arcs are just based on which bad guy Kenshiro is looking for and trying to fight at the moment. Kind of a similar thing with Naruto is the different arcs, really the only difference is this is the bad guy that they're facing off with at the moment, or this is the specific thing they're trying to do. Unlike those series, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, every single different one of these seven parts actually has a different main character. And they also take place in a different time period, usually separated by a decade or so. 
So they all tie together because all of the main characters, well, kind of except for Steel Ball Run, the main character is a member of the same family. And there are other plot elements that tie them together. But at the same time, because each one has a different main character and it takes place in a different area, in a different time, they're very much almost like different series. And so you can read them in kind of whatever order you want. So it's not nearly as kind of daunting to get into as most other series that you would say, oh my god, 80 plus volumes. No way. Sort of like, say, and kind of a bad comparison here, just because I'm mentioning the dread name of it, but Dragon Ball versus Dragon Ball Z versus Dragon Ball GT. Yeah, kind of. Although I'd say that JoJo's is even more separated because right. Dragon Ball. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because Dragon Ball all has the same Goku main character throughout right. the show. Times. Yeah, the yeah. closest connection that I would make is I mean, I can't really think of anything in like manga or anime, but for people who are fantasy fans, if you've ever read the uh, Shannara books by Terry Brooks and how each novel in the Shannara series, or at least the ones that I've read, I haven't read all of them, but each one had a different main character and took place, like, sometimes there would be decades or even, I think, maybe hundreds of years between them. JoJo's tends not to have a huge time separation between the storylines, but it's very much like that. It's a different main character, and the characters are kind of related through the same family. So you can choose to read whatever storylines in it you want. You'll get, I think, more out of it if you read everything, because then you'll get all of the details, and you'll understand all of the references that are there to string them together, but it's not really necessary. In fact, the American release of it, it doesn't even adhere to that. Yeah, Yeah. uh, exactly. I mentioned that the video game that a lot of people here are fans of is based off of Part 3 of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is, I think, by far the most popular segment. It certainly seems that way. Part 3 is also currently the only segment of JoJo's to have been animated, though that's actually going to change as they're working on an animated movie based on Part 1 of JoJo's, the part that I'm going to be talking about here. But for now, the only animation for it is a 13-episode OAV series based off of Part 3. That is available on DVD here in the United States from Super Techno Arts. Um, Good luck finding it. Yeah, it's kind of a little hard to get a hold of. And also, Viz started putting out the manga here, and they also started at part three because it is the most popular and it's the most familiar to the U.S. audience. I don't know if they have any plans to do any of the other segments besides three or not. So if you want to pick up the English release of the manga or you want to pick up the OAVs, even though they're a later segment of the series, you actually can watch them or read them if you want and you won't be totally lost. But anyway, JoJo's has seven parts, and part one is called Phantom Blood. And, well, describing the plot of any segment of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is kind of a weird undertaking, because the series really is bizarre. That title is not a joke. This is probably one of the strangest series that you'll read. As I describe this, I should mention that because it's the first part of JoJo's, Phantom Blood is actually the least ridiculous of the series. It's actually pretty tame in comparison to all the other segments. But anyway, here goes. Part 1, Phantom Blood, takes place in the 1800s, and it follows a young man named Jonathan Joestar, who lives in England. By the way, Jojo, in the title, comes from Jonathan Joestar. All of the main characters have two Joe syllables in their names, hence Jojo. 
And he is the son of a, a very wealthy man named George Joestar, and he has a very comfortable life. Things are going pretty well. Well, when Jonathan was little, his father and mother were in a carriage accident, and this man named Diego Brando came across the accident, and being a horrible person, tried to go down to the accident site and steal George Joestar's belongings. Like, he tried to steal some jewelry and some other stuff. Well, George Joestar woke up and caught him at it, but he thought that Diego was trying to help them. He was grateful to this man, and he offered him help. And so, some years later, when Jonathan is older, Diego Brando sends his son, Dio, to live with the Joe Stars. They're going to take him in. And George, being a, a very kind man, indeed does take young Dio in. The problem, though, is that, well, Dio, frankly, is much like his father, kind of a bastard. And Dio decides that what he really wants is to get his hands on the Joe Star family fortune. So to that end, he starts sucking up to George Joestar, and he starts really screwing around with Jonathan's head. He's cruel to him. He does things like abuses Jonathan's dog. He chases away Jonathan's friends, turns them against him. He uh, just is really horrible to Jonathan a lot of the time, but he never lets Jonathan's father see any of this. And basically, Dio's intention is to completely undermine this family, and by doing this, be able to get his hands on the entire fortune and be wealthy and comfortable. Needless to say, Jonathan eventually decides not to have any of this. This probably seems like a pretty standard series. Like, well, what's so strange about that? It's just this family story in Victorian England. Well, sort of. Except, see, there's this stone mask. It's a relic from the Aztecs, and Jonathan is kind of interested in it because it seems kind of strange. Well, they discover that this mask, any time that there's blood Blood, it extends these like spike tentacle things outward to where obviously if anybody was wearing the mask it would stick into their head. So at first Dio thinks, oh this is great, I'll use this to kill Jonathan. And after it kills him, it'll just go back to looking like a regular mask and nobody will ever be the wiser. Or if worse comes to worse, they'll just think that there was an accident while the mask was being studied. I'll get off scot-free. Except then Dio happens to discover that there's something a little more strange about the mask. When it sticks its tentacle spikes into a person head, they don't die. Well, they do, but then they get up, and they become incredibly strong, and incredibly resilient, and heal from damage. Basically, this Aztec stone mask turns people into vampires. And so Dio says, this is great. This is exactly what I need. I'll live forever, and I can just kill anybody that I need to. This is wonderful. And it proceeds to turn himself into a vampire, which is even worse news for Jonathan. Thankfully, Jonathan happens to meet a man by the name oh boy. of Zephyr. Oh, who, right. what? Never mind, go on. Well, Jonathan also meets a guy named Robert E.O. Speedwagon, or the interfering Speedwagon, who is the biggest Joestar fanboy in the universe. I think that if sparkly gel pins had been invented in Victorian England, Speedwagon would be writing Robert E.O. Joestar in big hearts in sparkly gel pen in notebooks. He'd be the one to start the live journal community? He totally would. He'd have a Jonathan Joestar is the bestest community. Because you see, Jonathan, being a Joestar, something that you'll realize as you read more segments of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, is that one of the core principles of JoJo's is Seigi. Seigi translates to justice or righteousness. It is kind of the backbone of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and it is very much the core of the Joestar family, that they all have Seigi. They might not be perfect, but they've got a core of 
knowing what's right and fighting for it. And Jonathan, of course, is the first example that we get of this. Being so strong in Seigi also kind of has the effect that basically anybody with even a little bit of goodness in them will go gay for whatever Joestar happens to be around at the moment. And so, yes, Speedwagon is the first in a long, long line of people to go totally gay for the Joestar of the moment. Anyway, so, you may uh, start seeing a pattern here in terms of names. I don't know if many people would notice it with Dio. Dio is a, a rock band, by the way. You might know the song Rainbow in the Dark. That's Dio. Of course, Robert, EO Speedwagon, REO Speedwagon, also a band. And uh, this guy, Zeppeli, is of course named for Led Zeppelin. So anyway, Zeppeli is this Italian guy, and he offers to teach Jonathan a martial art called Hamon, or Ripple, which is a weird martial arts technique that harnesses certain energy in the body through uh, breathing, and it unleashes this energy as you strike. And it's a natural energy, sort of similar to the properties of sunlight, which makes it a really, really great thing to use when fighting vampires, of course. So of course Jonathan, now that Dio is totally a crazy vampire who goes all the time, says, yeah, teach me this. And he proceeds to learn it from Zapelli, who, you know, himself learned the techniques of Hamon from the monk Tom Petty and his disciples Dire and Straits, which again, yes, crazy music names. An ongoing thing in JoJo's is people named after bands and other musical artists. It's I told you. Ridiculous. So yes, the party sets off to go kill Dio. While all this is going on, Dio decides that he needs minions and proceeds to start turning lots and lots of people around England into zombie servants, including Jack the Ripper. So if you ever wondered why Jack the Ripper suddenly disappeared and stopped killing people, it's because Dio turned him into a zombie servant. Exactly. Who shoots scalpels out of his body and hides in horses. So anyway, Jonathan and his friends have to go and face off with Dio, and I will not spoil the totally awesome and really, really gay ending, except to say, forever love, forever dream. By the way, if you like Clamp, I highly recommend that you read JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, because Clamp are huge, huge JoJo's fangirls. And uh, if you read JoJo's, you can totally see all of the things that they, depending on whether you like Clamp or not, ripped off or paid homage to from JoJo's in their work, like the aforementioned Forever Love, Forever Dream from the X movie. Now, this series of JoJo's is, to be perfectly honest, I'd say it's my least favorite of all the JoJo series. But that's because it's the first one. When Araki started this, he had only had a fairly short career. His artwork, his storytelling, all of this was still developing. And because JoJo's had just started, the ideas and the style of JoJo's were just beginning and were taking shape. Anybody who's read a manga that goes for a long time, especially if it's one that starts fairly early in the artist's career, you'll often notice a very, very sharp change in art style. And generally speaking, what it is is that the art will get much better as you go along. If you've read the manga for Hikaru no Go, you'll see that Obata's artwork starts out looking okay. By the end of Hikaru no Go, his art looks phenomenal. If you've read the manga for Flame of Rekka, the artwork starts out pretty crappy. By the end of the series, it's good. Mira's Berserk. The artwork in 
the beginning of Berserk is not nearly as good as the artwork later on. In fact, if you don't see some improvement, then you kind of have to wonder if they're actually evolving as an artist. Right, exactly. So the artwork in the first part of JoJo's is not all that exceptionally great. There's a lot of proportion problems and weird limbs twisting in strange ways. Araki really likes to do crazy dynamic poses, but you can tell that in the beginning of JoJo's, those poses are not controlled. It's just errors in the artwork as opposed to really stylized positioning. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah. The other thing is that if you've ever read or seen Fist of the North Star, the first two parts of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure were really, really influenced by Fist of the North Star. Araki hadn't really developed the super stylized, unique style that you see if you look at later parts of JoJo. So people who are familiar with Part 3 and beyond through like the video games or whatever, yeah, Part 1 and 2 look very different. They look very much like Fist of the North Star. The guys are really huge and burly, really muscular. With tiny heads. Yes, with very tiny heads. Very, <laughs> very tiny out of proportion. heads. Yeah, really oh, yeah. just way out of proportion. Yeah, definitely. So the artwork was kind of eh. It gets better even within Part 1, but if you really look at all the parts of JoJo's, there's just this enormous improvement. Steel Ball Run, I know, just looks amazing. Yeah, I have a hard time pronouncing his name. Viparelli, the one that JoJo Zeppoli? learns. Ze- yeah, Ze- Zeppoli. He just looked very strange to me, since yeah. he didn't change his facial expression that much. <laughs> it was yeah, like Zeppoli's every kind of a weird character. So. Every single scene of him, no matter what, just seemed to have the same exact facial expression. Yeah, Zeppoli's kind of strange. I think that was probably intentional, though. Maybe. So, because it's the very beginning and Araki is just kind of starting to figure things out, part one is probably the weakest. We're talking about it first because we're just kind of going in order. We figured we'll just do these in the order that they were written. But, when I first started reading part one, I had already read other parts of JoJo's. Like a lot of people, I came to JoJo's through part three, through the animated version. And then, after part three, I think the next part I read was part five, and I kind of skipped around a little, and I didn't go back to read part one and two, those earlier parts, until much later. So it was kind of strange for me to go back. This was the first manga of JoJo's that I'd read was part one. Oh, really? Okay. But yeah, I'd seen the JoJo's anime prior. I said this is the first manga of JoJo's. Right, but she's talking about her first exposure was in this. What you've said is true. It's just a side tangent to the point yeah. she's making. Right. So when I first started reading it, I was like, I don't know, this doesn't seem strange enough to be JoJo's. Like, it's just not nearly as weird, and I just didn't think it was as good. And at first, it isn't. And I mean, I do think overall, like I said, that part one is my least favorite, but by the time I finished it, I actually did enjoy it. Like, at first, I just wasn't really digging it all that much, but I think it was about chapter 25 or so. It really kind of picks up steam, and Araki really starts to pull out the craziness, and then it kind of just rolls until the end, which is just awesome. So I I do recommend part one. I don't know if people should read it first. I think it depends. I know some people that have said if they hadn't read the early parts first, they probably wouldn't have enjoyed the earlier parts as much. You mean if, if they, they had... hadn't read the later parts first, they wouldn't have enjoyed? Oh no! If no, no, no. The 
earlier parts, they wouldn't have enjoyed the later. Right, because they would have compared it unfavorably with the later parts because it's weaker because he was just getting started. So it's like if they had read the other more developed parts of JoJo's they first... easily go back. Right. They would have been not able to enjoy the earlier artwork very much and so on and so forth. But some people may enjoy the earlier parts more if they kind of know where the series is going. So I don't really know what to say. I think you're just going to have to make that decision for yourself. It was kind of weird for me. It was was weird for me since this was the first manga that I'd read. And if you have no other exposure to any other JoJo's aside from me, I mean, I'd watched some of the anime, the first series of it. But the first first in terms of it being made or the the first first the first in terms of it being made. The first in terms, yeah, the ones that were made in the 90s as opposed to the ones that were made around 2000, 2001 or so. Okay. And if all you've got is kind of a very small exposure to JoJo's, the first part does seem very different. It's not like a regular shonen fighting show, but it's kind of, sort of, average, I want to say. I I think. It's like... I don't think I'd ever call it average. I think it kind of felt like... I mean, when you can... I mean, because like I said, once you get to about chapter 23 or 24, it starts to get pretty weird. And one of the other things that I like about JoJo's is that... um, And one of the reasons that I'd say it's not really average is that... I mentioned that JoJo's is a shonen fighting series, and I also mentioned that it's 80-plus volumes long. In 80-plus volumes of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, there is not one tournament. Also... Well, of course, I'm only going on part one. That's what I meant. Right, but I'm just saying, even in part one, I agree that part one is much more standard than the other parts, because part one is more martial arts-focused, whereas the later parts, it moves into this thing called stands that I'll talk about, or Daryl will talk about in later segments when that comes in. Part Um, two was totally martial arts as well. Yeah, part two also. Part one and two are much more martial arts-based. They don't have the stands yet. And so, I, I mean, I'd agree they're more standard, but still, even in the very beginning, there's still no tournaments. The other big thing that I really like, and again, this doesn't reach its peak until later in the series, but I think you can still see it in the beginning. I think the fights in JoJo's are some of the best fights in any shonen stuff because, number one, people win fights by being smarter than the other guy. Right, it's winning fights using the power of critical thinking skills. Exactly. JoJo's doesn't operate on the same way that most other shonen series do, which is what I call the power-up formula, which is that either everybody in a shonen series, usually because shonen main characters tend to be pretty stupid, everybody tends to win battles by powering up. Punch it's you either, harder. I'll punch you harder well, than you did. It's, it's like, either so and so technique. Oh, I better yeah. figure out a way to beat so and so technique. Oh, I gotta go train. <laughs> yes. It's either. Oh my God, I'm now Super Saiyan level two, and my power level is over nine thousand because you know I've reached deep into myself and found a hidden reserve of power that I never knew I had. Blah 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 blah. So suddenly they're hugely powerful and they can just steamroller over the other guy. Or it is like Daryl said, I've now mastered the super secret ultra technique, and now my technique is mightier than yours. I'm a sucker for that, no matter how many times I see it. With JoJo, Kishira can put together a pretty good fighting scene, though, so... What? He's talking Uh, about the battle angel dude, which is totally just... But that's not a shounen... But that's not a shounen action series, is it? Isn't that like a seinen? No, it's it's Mm, shounen. It's shounen. It also runs an ultra jump now. 
Yeah. All right. I'm not saying that every single, but I'm saying it's that this is a staple. most of the time it's either my power level just got higher and or I just mastered a new technique. But in JoJo's, it's all about logical thinking, being quick on your feet and saying, you know, oh, how can I use my environment to one up the other guy? Or how can I use, you know, my limitations or my opponent's limitations in order to win this fight? You know, in JoJo's, there's not a whole lot of powering up. People pretty much have a certain amount of ability, period. And they have to fight with that amount of ability and they don't really get that much stronger over the course of the show. So they have to learn how to use their abilities intelligently in order to win, which I think is not something you see a lot in Shonen Action, and so it's pretty refreshing. It's more of a sports anime sort of mindset, except mm. in the sense of, what is this guy doing? I have to figure out what this guy is doing. Right. Okay, I figured out what this guy is doing. Now that I know what this guy is mm -hmm. doing, what in the world can I do to possibly beat that? Maybe not right a sport now. so much as boxing. The boxing anime with stands or fighting. <laughs> So, how can people read this manga? The JoJo's manga has been mostly scanlated. If you go to Ignition One's website, they are a group that works on scanlating JoJo's, and I believe that they actually right now have all of Part One and most, if not all, of Part Two up for download on their website, direct download. I know that there's also been some batch torrents for the scanlations for Part One. Do you know how many volumes Part Two went on for? I I, I believe. Yeah. I don't know so there's the about, I believe that there's about 55 volumes out. Well, actually, hold on. 55 volumes what? For of JoJo's? JoJo's, not just part two. No, yeah, well, yeah of Scantillate. Oh, no, there's more than that. At least in, that, in a batch torrent, I got 55 volumes, so it's at least that much. Let's see. Part one was five volumes, and then part three starts at volume 12, it looks like. So, so that would make... probably all of part one, all of part two, and probably most, if not all, of part three. At least. And all of part four, because part four goes from volume 29 through volume 47. Okay, then probably well into part five then. Yeah, part five I believe starts at volume 47 also, like right where part four ends. Yeah, it's kind of weird with JoJo's in that I didn't notice that part one ended on like a particular volume. It ended at like within a volume and then part two started up within that volume. Most of them actually do that. A great deal of the stories in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure like will end, one story will end like part way into a volume, and the next story will just start off immediately within the same volume. Right. Um, th they just think about it. Yeah, they just flow directly into one another. If it just stopped yeah. immediately at the end of the volume, people wouldn't have incentive to right. pick up the next volume. Yeah. Whereas if they've read maybe two or three chapters exactly. of the new part. Yeah. They are making a movie based off of Part 1, and also just at the end of October, Bandai put out a PS2 game based off of Part 1. I have no idea if either of those will come to the United States. I don't know about the video game. The Part 3 fighting game did come to the US, but there was a video game for Part 5 that never did come over. So I don't know if this Part 1 game is ever going to make it over here. I doubt um, it. Yeah, so if you want to play it, your best bet is to import it, if you can play import games. And the movie, I don't know if that's going to come out. I know the JoJo's Part 3 anime came out here, so maybe whenever the movie comes out, which I don't know a release date for that yet, but whenever that comes out, maybe Super Techno Arts will do it, but I'm sure somebody will probably if fan they did, sub it. it would take them eight years. <laughs> so you can look forward to the anime adaptation, but I recommend going ahead and reading the manga. It's quite short. I I think it's the shortest of all the JoJo segments, so it shouldn't take very much time to read.
I don't know, that's, it's hard to say anything else because a lot of other stuff that I'd say would have to do with other parts of JoJo's and we're saving that for later. Yeah, probably best for the sanity of all involved if we just yeah. hold off on future discussions of future parts yeah. for a later date. <laughs> and that's it for another episode of Anime World Order. As we said, you can check us out at www.animeworldorder.com. Send us an email at animeworldorder at gmail.com. Give us a call at 206-666-4296 or send us an audio. Just go to the website and click on send us an audio. Also, be sure to tell us about what you thought of those episodes of Urashimon if you happen to download them. So, what are we going to do next week? Next week, I am going to hopefully be able to do a review of a TV series that a lot of people wrote in requesting that I watch. It's a Studio Gonzo show. But, hmm, you've heard what we've been saying about Gonzo shows in the past, and people wrote into us anyway saying, hey, watch this. Could this be the exception to the Gonzo rule? Bide your time and hold out hope, because I'm going to be reviewing Gonkutsuo, the Count of Monte Cristo. I'm going to be taking a look at Hideo Yamamoto's Voyeur and Voyeurs, Inc. Hideo Yamamoto, as you might know, was the author of Homunculus, a manga that Clarissa reviewed some episodes ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will be taking a look at a Studio Ghibli film called Only Yesterday that we all got copies of not too long ago. Because, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Epers, for that. Yes, definitely. He was very kind and sent us all copies of the Region 2 discs. So yeah, I'll be taking a look at that one. Okay. So as you can see, since this is show 40, we're all totally over the hill because we're all reviewing these things that are like... For middle-aged people, or based <laughs> off literature, or just shouldn't be read by kids. <laughs> Voyeur's Inc. is pretty out there. It's wonderfully twisted, well, so I look forward it's to it's by the dude who did Ichi the Killer. The killer, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, yep. that's what's in store for us now that we're past the episode 40 mark. You know we're coming up on one year's worth of Anime World Order. Oh, yep. God. We're coming in about uh, just a few more weeks. It'll be one year of Anime World Order, and so I don't know if we expected we to get something? this far. I mean, most people celebrate the 40th <laughs> episode somehow. Then they celebrate the one-year anniversary. Or, I don't know. We should come up with something revolutionary, like... We should get Patrick Macius, Carl Horn, Walter Amos, Steve Harrison... And then we and can Tim Eldred all on one and show. Never speak ourselves. We can just speak. <laughs> all right, guys, go. Uh, the subject well, is figures. Start. <laughs> yeah, we we don't really have any good ideas as to you know how we're going to celebrate having done this for an entire year. Much in the otaku oh. tradition, there are no holidays. Everything is just another day. Christmas, just another day. Birthday, just another day. That's how you live when you're rolling otaku style. Remember Pretty much. That. That so, welcome to the NHK. Yeah, if anybody there has got any sort of ideas as to you know what we should do for a one-year anniversary, email us because we've got absolutely no ideas of our own ever at any point. So, well, other than that, I guess that's about it for this episode. So, I guess till next week.